Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Salam and thank you for tuning in. This is Omar. And in this episode, I'm joined by poet, writer, and another core team member of the Sacred Footsteps team, Yasmin Ahmed, as well as Shahroz Khan, writer, traveler, and community organizer, as well as a student of political science focusing in South Asia. He's also a photographer whose work has been featured in local and national exhibits around Canada. But before I introduce the topic, I'd like to share a short story. Alauddin Khalji, who was the ferocious second ruler of the Khalji dynasty during the Delhi Sultanate, held a competition of music and poetry in the 13th century. He invited one of the most prominent Hindu poets and musician, Pandit Gopal. Pandit Gopal traveled with thousands of students from southern India all the way to Delhi at the invitation of the Sultan. He had prepared a musical masterpiece with 28,000 lines of verse that he would perform over a period of three weeks in the royal court, each line ending with a question, what can your god do? Alauddin Khalji was not particularly pleased by the challenges of a Hindu poet and musician. He tapped on a rising prodigy of music and poetry, Amir Khusro. Khusro was also a student of Nizamuddin Chishti, or Nizamuddin Aliya, one of the teachers of the Chishti Sufi order in South Asia. Khusro, who had listened to Pandit Gopal for three weeks at the royal court, asked the court for six weeks to prepare his response. He returned to the court in six weeks with 12 young men and boys and performed 28 lines of verse in a musical performance. At the end of Khusro's performance, Pandit Gopal conceded the competition. The details of this incident are disputed, but it is widely believed as the moment when the musical tradition of Qawwali was born. Qawwali is a form of zikr, or remembrance of God, that came out of the Jishti order of Sufism in the Indian subcontinent. It blends Eastern musical scales, or rags, with poetry in a celebration of love. Love towards the Creator, the Prophet, the House of the Prophet, the afterlife. The singing of Qawwali in Sufi shrines and mausoleums is a practice of Sama, a devotional practice that involves singing, playing musical instruments, dancing, praying, reciting poetry, and participating in rituals in order to achieve a higher spiritual state. Okay, so today... I know this is going to be like a really behemoth of a topic because I don't know about you guys, but I can continuously keep talking about Kuali because that's yeah. like one of the most frequently listened to genre that I listen to like yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. So, but to kick off the discussion, I want to kind of take us back to the roots and the history. So what can you guys tell us about the history of this uh, artistic tradition? 
Well, I actually wanted to talk about um, Anisha Rahman's article in Scroll that we were um, mentioning earlier. And it talked about like the origin of Qawwali was based out of the Ghazal of the Arabian Peninsula and how uh-huh. the Arabian Peninsula actually, like the Ghazal spread from Arabian Peninsula to all the way to Spain to, and to West, A- West Africa. And when it came to Persia and India, it actually went through uh, under the most uh, transformations where it became unrecognizable because the Persian guzzle acquired its own characteristic. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I found that really, really inspiring because um, although that we see Kavali as a uniquely South Asian phenomenon, um, it came from Arabian Peninsula with the, with the advent of Islam and how it traveled. It had its own history from Arabia to India and um, all the and the other way around too, from Arabia to Spain, and they have their own versions of Kavali. So that was really cool when I was reading about that. Yeah, I um, I think so. I I feel like what the article is trying to say that every sort of culture, I suppose, has its own version. Um, so I, prominently in Turkish culture, you get the summer, um, and I think Kavali. I suppose it is really central to South Asia in that its sort of evolution over time kind of lends itself to the style um, Mm -hmm. of like Sufi music in India, which um, the article sort of touches on. Um, But there are prominent figures that are stated like time and time again for like the beginning of Gawali in in that region. Um, And, you know, namely sort of artists credited to Amir Husro, um, and um, Nizamuddin Olia and sort of spiritual masters, I guess. So um, I think it's kind of, it's definitely created its own identity. But yeah, you're, I agree. It's like, it's, I suppose, wherever you go in the world, there would be a form of Qawwali there. Um, yeah. It, there was a, the Qawwali as, as a mu- music form came um, between the tangent of like Hindustani music, traditional music, and Sufism, and how it developed, how it took rich traditions of both um, Islam and the and the Indian subcontinent, and it, it formulated its own identity within the religious um, hemisphere of India, which is still a point of contention, I suppose, um, <laughs> because obviously, with it, there, I feel like there was there's all always been this like battle to um, sort of incorporate music within what could be seen as restrictive constructs of Islam and sort Mm -hmm. of I think now a lot of people see it as more like a liberal spiritual form of of uh Islam but actually Mm -hmm. it was like really major in sort of getting the message across to uh people in the subcontinent that wouldn't have known about it otherwise um so I've always found that really fascinating and quite interesting as well Okay, so that's something that I wanted to touch on, actually, a few things that you guys brought up. This idea of the summer and, um, you know, the the very, uh, the Sufi-based, um, you know, hi- traditional um, heritage of this tradition that you're basically saying that, you know, the evolution of the ghazal um as a poetry form but also as a practice of zikr almost right so where do you think um the split happened between you know as the as the tradition migrated from turkey and other parts and made its way into um 
made its way into the subcontinent? And how did that shift take place? I think one of the most defining um, timelines of Kavali was with Umir Khusro and how he started incorporating native dialects of Baraj Basha into um, the traditions of Ghazal that came from Persia. And he became he began uh, making sure, like, and that's also like the development of the Urdu language as well um, through Amir Khusro and, and the the Sultan of Delhi. And I think uh, from there, we, we saw the rise of literary capitals like Deccan, Delhi, and Lucknow, and how they started formulating their each own styles of Qawwali through um, indigenous music traditions that already existed in those cities, um, combined with the Sufi traditions of poetry that came um, from uh, Data Hajreri and then later on Bulisha and all of them. So I think there you can't really pinpoint the exact moment where Kavali split from the Persian Ghazal, but um, it it was more of a like how how do you say like a transition? It was it was a spectrum of transition where there were small transitions happening in place all at the same time. And then you began you began seeing an actual formulation of Qawwali in the 20th century. As Islam was brought into the subcontinent, what role did music play? Because you you said that is a very contentious uh, topic even today. That like you know history's not able to reconcile the fact that such a uh, orthodox interpretation of uh, of Islam may not necessarily be welcoming of the elements of music and poetry in it. How do you think that tension uh, manifests in like the Kowali, uh, the in in the history of Kowali? Um, so yeah, so for me, it's um, um, it's always kind of come across in in well, there's two things I think. One thing is sort of a really important to mention is interfaith dialogue and sort of Sufi masters. Um, like when we when we go forward and we start talking about the Kowalis in question, like Shabazz Kalender and all of these people is the interfaith dialogue and kind of things of that nature that that's that um that sort of spun out poetry to kind of meet meet those religious factions in the middle and bring them together equally i feel like later on music added like in addition to that music kind of does the same thing it builds communities together and so if you, I'm like explaining this really long-windedly because I'm trying to get my thoughts out. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's always been, uh, especially in South Asia, this sort of divide between different factions of religion um, and uh, culture. culture, And I guess the um, the binding together of that with sort of Sama and Kowali and music being brought into it was a way to kind of merge that together and sort of unite it um, in a way. Basically what you're saying is that there's enough of uh, borrowed traditions from the subcontinent where, you know, uh, elements like musical elements of Kowali can not only be found in the orthodox interpretation of what the faith is trying to teach, but also, you know, uh, kind of mixing and bridging gaps with uh, cultures that already existed there uh, and, you know, kind of blending those musical elements into place and the poetry into place. So that's actually a good good thing that I wanted to touch touch on as well. Like where, what, first of all, let's try to get your own personal history on, on Kowali. Like where, what is your guys' personal relationship with Kowali? Share us. 
Oh my God. So Kavali, like growing up in Lahore, um, I was in Lahore until I was 12. And growing up in Lahore, Kavali was like a central musical, like, like musical um, memory of, of Lahore, in my opinion. Um, especially because I was at a time when I was growing up in Lahore in late 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of original Pakistani music being produced itself. Um, and a lot of the music uh, turned uh, like took a religious form um, in in Pakistan due to like uh, we were cu- just coming out of the 80s that had extreme um, Islamization of Pakistan through Ziaul Haq's regime, and what that did uh, was that it it really destroyed a lot of Pakistani Pakistan's music scene where only kawals and like other religious folk music was left for uh, for people to consume. Um, and and that I think had a really big impact on why like Kavali became such a big phenomenon in Pakistan in the, in nineties and in, in the early two thousands because this was a way for people to um, this was the only avenue of music actually that was available for people um, not that there wasn't other music being produced because there was but this was this didn't this Kavali didn't have the barrier of class of religion of ethnicity of anything really because if you looked at the other musicians that were coming up around that time um, a lot of them were with higher like middle class to high class but Kavali didn't have that barrier and whenever we would go to Ursas for Data Hajveri or um, even local Ursas there would definitely be a Kaval there present singing the poetry of Bulisha of Data Hajveri himself and talking about the modzas and the miracles of these Sufi saints and I think that really helped formulate my personal relationship with not only Kowali, but also Islam, because um, a lot of Islam that I've been taught has been through the lens of Sufism and Kowali itself. And Yasmin? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really personal, my relationship with Kowali. Um, born, uh, not, um, born in the UK and Birmingham, which is like very inner city, kind of third culture, diaspora kid listened to Kowali since probably my birth um, from my parents. So born into uh, Sufi Tariqa. So kind of that was my practice. That was my spiritual practice um, growing up. I didn't know anything different. I just assumed that everybody had that, like everybody was a Sufi. Like that was my Islam, you know. Um, so Kowali was also a big part of that. And my dad was fundamental in introducing me to that when I was younger I, it was just music for me. I I enjoyed it. I didn't really understand it. As I grew older, I feel like it's the one thing that's kept has been kept constant in my faith. Um, and I'm like, I, I won't say my age, but like it's been a long time. Like growing up in like a sort of uh, like sure I was like early nineties, sort of Britain. Um, it was like one thing that really connected me to my culture, and my dad would play koalis but not just play them like it wasn't passive it was really active listening he would translate them he would help us understand him he would tell us the stories of the saints behind them and as I got older I kind of felt like music was my this kind of music was my one sort of spiritual like constant in my life it's like akin to the way my family listened to koali is akin to I don't know, people in the 60s liking the Beatles. Like, it's the same mm. level of sort of madness. Um, <laughs> and, like, the feeling, I, I guess for me, it's it's really emotive and emotional. So when I was younger, I didn't really understand the words, but they would still move me. Like, I would still get really emotional and sort of, like, feel it mm-hmm. in my heart, right? 
And right. that's only increased in intensity as I understood sort of the background and the meaning behind the words. And um, for me, it was always like this, this was my, this is my Islam. So I guess I kind of, I never really, uh, growing up, I had a lot of people saying like, oh, music is haram. You shouldn't listen to Kowali. Like a lot of my school friends would be like, you can't listen to Kowali. Like they're singing about God. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, why would I not listen to that? Like you guys listen mm. to Tupac and Biggie and that's fine. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so for me, it's like a very like personal, emotional um, experience that I've, yeah, I've only gotten closer to um, over the years. And I actually wanted to comment on that because like coming, coming out of Pakistan and then coming to Canada and being in the diaspora, I think Gawali is one way of make, connecting with your religion and your faith beyond just like the ritualistic practices that go in our faith, right? Um, I feel like regardless of um, in, in the diaspora, from what I've noticed, there is a lot of like um, ethnic divide, sectarian divide within South Asian community itself. And I think Gawali really helps bridge that gap uh, when taking into like when people are listening to it with a um, beyond just like the, uh, like when they're, they're actively listening to it as opposed to passive. Because in, in Pakistan, a lot of background, like a lot of background music is Kavali music. You could go on the rickshaws, you go on the chandgaris, you go on like to a tea shop, and Kavali is always playing in the background. Uh, but like in in the diaspora, there is more of an effort to make it an active. A part of your faith and your your journey with with uh, with music. So actually, that's a really good point. I wanted to touch on actually one of my own stories of Kowali. My um, my uncle, my dad's brother. I remember very recently. I didn't know um, this story up until just last year. Actually, um, my uncle's living has been living in Montreal for the last like. 30, 40 years, you know, so he, as a student, was always very involved in the community. And, um, you know, back in the days in the 70s and 80s, the the number of South Asian people from in Montreal was probably a handful. So, you, you know, it was a close quarters kind of a circumstance where everybody knew of each other or you were second or third degree connected anyway. Um, so one of the first concerts that... Um, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan did in in Montreal. My uncle was part of the uh, the organizers that brought him here, uh, brought him to Montreal, and he was saying that you know for a lot of the people, especially the students there, the it was such a way of uh, forming community. For so what Sharoz is saying that you know Kawali so actively listened to in parts of the diaspora as a way of connecting. Um, so I think that's really, that's for me, and that's also been very applicable to my own journey when I think about my relationship to Kowali. It's not something that I grew up listening to, you know, like you always kind of, I mean, I grew up in the Middle East and then immigrating here to Canada was was a whole other uh, kind of, you know, third culture identity crisis. <laughs> but Kowali is something that I discovered much later in my life. And when I realized that, um, you know, there's such a wealth of cultural and folk knowledge and, and you know, just kind of trying to understand the, the depth of what that tradition is trying to teach was such a, a treasure trove for me. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was kind of like I, 
I I always felt like a bit of um I hate using this word but coconut. Uh I always felt like, you know, not not brown enough to fit in, not not white enough to fit in, but for me it was kind of like, well what what aspects of my culture, my faith do I really resonate with? And for me it was it was Kuali and it and it still is. And I think just bringing that back to kind of like listening to people like Nusra then Aziz Mia and the Sabri brothers like growing up like now it feels like it's actually quite trendy to listen to that stuff, um, and, which I actually don't mind. Like I like that it's becoming more mainstream uh, because for a long while, like I feel like I couldn't really talk about this stuff openly with other Muslims, even even though I thought that that's, this is what everybody did and everybody listened to Gwali and I soon found out that that's not true. Like a lot of people are actually against it. So for me, it's kind of like comforting that it's kind of come into the mainstream. But yeah, it was definitely like both of you, like like making me navigate back to my history um, and my roots. Um, and you know, my parents are are from uh, like Multan, and and that was played played a big part of me sort of finding out about more about Kowali and sort of their spiritual history. So it connected me to my parents a lot. Um, and I think it's so wide, like the breadth of Gwadi is so, it's so deep and diverse. And I think uh, like so many people around the world are connected by it. And I guess growing up, I didn't, I didn't really see that. But as I got older, I, c- I can see kind of like, well, look, you guys are from Canada and I'm from the UK and we're kind of talking about this right now in the present day. And for me, that's, that's something really amazing. Like that doesn't normally happen. That's a really good point. I want to transition the discussion towards like, you know, maybe kind of looking at some pieces of Kowali. So for me, like one of the most, um, you know, like something that I can constantly keep listening to is Nusrat Fateh Khan, right? Like his voice, his, his, um, his way of structuring and deconstructing a song and then like kind of like taking the listener through so many different kinds of melodies and then kind of resolving it is like genius. And I was reading, um, there was actually a documentary that was recently released on on Nisrat, on his performance at the World World Music Festival that happened back in the 80s, I guess. Yeah, the WOMAD Festival. Yeah, the WOMAD yeah. Festival. And I was fascinated by that because it was essentially what's that Woodstock moment for world music, you know? So th- there's all these prominent world musicians um talking about like you know there was like ethiopian gospel musicians apparently there were like you know just people from all around the world playing and the audience was it was kind of like the modern festival right like they were partying there were a lot of hippies that were probably high you know <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and it just went for days right and nusrat was one of the evening performances i believe and he came on with his troupe and he the first thing that he said was that I'd like everyone to sit down because that is the element of the sama of of like the mehfil of Kowali that like you have to you have to remain seated you know like it's a it's a practice where like there's a lot of there are a lot of governing principles ar- around Kowali that like people just can't start singing as it is right like you have to be situated it's a very uh, audience specific and audience responsive uh, art um so he asked everyone to sit down and he started with Allahu, which his rationale was that we start with every we start everything with the remembrance of God. 
And so I was like just watching parts of that video and I was just in complete shock at the fact that, you know, here's an audience that probably understands little to nothing. In fact, probably nothing other than the South Asian people that were in the, in the audience. But there was so much observance given to that tradition and his, his command over the audience was so su- like superb. So in that, I want to kind of like, you know, talk about a very specific quality that's, I think, very dear to all three of us. It's called Iskaramka Shukar Kesa Karumada, which essentially translates into how do I give thanks <laughs> to for for this blessing, for this mercy? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I um can I just say that well I've seen that clip so many times, that well my clip. Like I grew up watching that clip of that performance and the the other like the respect he his presence on stage I think that's why for me he trumps everybody because he commands that presence on stage but yeah I just had to pipe in and and say that I literally I know that clip but I even remember the dances and everything that the hippies are doing (laughs) in the field okay so I was I, I did some research for this um in the beginning and um you know I was looking at a structure of what a song of a typical Kawali song looks like. The thing that stood, stands out to me is that the poetry is such a central part of it, but it's like, it's really hard to decipher um, where the different uh, authors uh, come in. So, you know, even something like Shabazz Kalender or Iskaram Kashukar Kasekarumada, like there's no not a single poet that's like consistent throughout. Like I know for a fact Shabazz Kalender has Bulisha and um, Amir Khusra. So how do you think that is something that lends into the tradition? Like, is it a very, does it allow the tradition to be very fluid? I think, I think that's actually one of the, one for me, that's one of the most romantic parts of Kavali. It's a communal knowledge. Um, there's no one owner of Kavali, of any, of any Kavali, basically. It's a communal knowledge. It's folk tradition. And um, a lot of it now is being copyrighted by different artists or by different companies like Coke Studio, or you have Rath Fatali Khan that is copywriting a lot of this stuff. But traditionally, it's been folk music and it's been folk instruments and it's been um, folk knowledge that has been incorporated within all these um, with these bigger artists like Nusra Fatih Ali Khan and Sabri Brothers, for instance. And uh, a lot of them would also um, blend, like they would suit to their styles to blend different uh, poetry, poems and poetries together to make sure that um, they were getting, a, they were performing a piece that they were more, most comfortable with. They didn't want to perform a piece that didn't really speak to their own personal relationship with with the words being said. Um, like for instance, La, La Shabazz Kalander, like uh, Amir Khusro was the first person who who made that um, stanza, and then um, Bulisha added to it. And then I think there's a version of that Reshma did, and that was her, her own folk um, tradition from her village and from her ethnic background. And I think that's what the beauty of Kavali for me it is. It's communal knowledge beyond just like one single person who owns it. Yeah, I think I I 100% agree with that. But I, uh, And I also think that 
when um when masters of the art when they look to performing and sort of combining poetry together it's all about the reaction from the audience and so when you watch a performance and you look at the structure of things put together it's it's so cleverly done in that the breaks and the associations in it are kind of done to pause and let the audience reflect and give back a response and Nusrat does this uh, amazingly effectively and um, he does it a lot in Iskaram Kakaru um, where he he ponders on things and he kind of does things in the Gwali with, with emphasis again and again to see what the mm. audience is right and actually if you look at Gwali practices and sort of practice sessions and stuff you can see them doing this like in rehearsals and whatever like constantly trying to get that emotional response mm-hmm. back because it's a form uh, ultimately as much as we might not feel comfortable saying that it's a form of worship and it's kind of allowing us to uh i guess escape and reconnect with um sort of uh the past and how we might have felt in the time of the prophet if the prophet was in front of us how would you feel like that's that's the level Mm. like the depth of emotional response and i feel like an amalgamation of different poetry kind of is effective in that um because it needs to be a performance and it needs to kind of it needs to sort of build up to that, right? Right. In fact, like a lot of the books that are written on Kowali, like there's two prominent ones. One is by um, Shamim Bernie Abbas, which is called The Female Voice in Sufi Ritual. And the other one is by um, Regula Qureshi, which is about, um, it's basically the most comprehensive study on Kowali that I've ever read because she's broken down. It's called Kowali Sound Context Meaning in Indo-Muslim Sufi Muslim uh, Music. And this was a PhD thesis. And she's basically kind of given, a, a, you know, like sound analysis, the structure of a song, the poetry, the history, the socioeconomic uh, significance of Kowali. So a lot of the people have touched on this that like, you know, it's a very responsive based uh, it's a, it's a, it's fluid because it's responsive to the audience. So when we look at when we try to situate the mehfil, like the the actual event of Kawali, Sharoz, uh, you mentioned you know like growing up in Lahore. How do you think that other that Yasmin was talking about translates into practice in like the dargahs and shrines of Lahore or other places in Pakistan? What does that other look like? The other, oh my God. So like one of the essential things of, of actually um, attending a Kavali Mafil is the setting of it and the, and the seating of it. Um, uh, uh, usually like uh, Kavalis take place uh, on Thursday nights nowadays um, because Thursday is like a ho- holy night for us and it's the night before Friday. So it's the night of worship and um, we're sitting down. Um, so there is a level of respect on how we even sit. So the the kaval masters, the masters of kaval, and the uh, and the people that are singing and the people that are they're playing the folk instruments, they're sitting um at a higher level than us, and we are sitting below um below them as we are looking onto them. Like there are teachers and there are masters, and they're teaching us. It's like giving us a lecture for almost giving us a lecture. Like Yasmin said, this is a form of worship, and it could be um equated to like modern day halakas, for instance, right? Um, and it's a pious religious performance um, that that really seeks to uh, build a relationship between the audience and the kaval themselves. And um, a, a lot of what the kavals do and what, a lot of what the kavals sing about is 
is reliant on the reaction from the audience. If they're going to continue with that stanza, if they're going to elongate that stanza, and if they're going to like what, or how are they going to um, discuss it? And some people even start, for instance, so we start by sitting cross-legged, but then some people get so emotional and involved in the music that they start whirling and twirling and doing them all as the kaval is going on. And that isn't seen as a sign of disrespect, but it's as, as seen a sign of passion um, um, right. and how the kavals are invoking that passion within people, especially at such a sacred place like a Sufi shrine or a meeting of a Sufi order. So that's actually a good um, good segue into some of the you know terms that I came upon in um, researching for this. Like, what does the word like hal mean to you guys? Um, for me, hal is like, or it's your state, essentially. But in the terms of koali, um, it's like the level it can get you to. Um, like certain words and certain phrases can make you in, uh, make you have like a devotional kind of ecstasy, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for you're me, talking like, about the makam, like you're talking about that transcendence, which uh, is the ultimate yeah. goal. Yeah, and okay. and for me, that's like that's where Kawali is is its most powerful. And I was saying earlier, like there's there's some lines in um in Iskaram Kakaru where I feel like I it's so overpowering. Like sometimes I can't even. Like I can't listen in public because I'll just go like get really emotional, yeah. um, and especially like uh, in the last few lines we were talking earlier, Omar, about um, you know when uh, especially in the Nusrat version where he asks the audience or his friends, he's like, you know, the the Prophet has given me uh, so much, like friends, like what more can I ask for my Lord? And the way he asks that, like the addressing of that to like, you know, I'm like I'm I'm empty, I'm nothing, and you know, my, my prophet has given me everything. It's kind of like, if you look at just the translation, you'd be like, well, that's a bit like, I'm nothing like what, but when, when somebody sings that, like when somebody does that with a melody, uh, it's, it's transcending. And so for me, like Hal is that it's that devotional ecstasy that I, I find it's quite difficult to find that anywhere else. I think, you know what I was taken aback by this word that, you know, I, um, I remember my dad used to always joke with me um, that you're both very like which means like you know he he used to basically just tease me by saying like oh like you seem to be in some sort of like a, a problem like you, you seem like it shows on your face right like you're in some kind of tension or whatever huh. and so yeah. I grew up thinking that the word kefiat means like just like bothered uh, yeah. or um, kind of like disturbed. And then when I was reading these these texts and like this this constant referral to the word kafiyat and what that word means, like it it literally means going through the scale of different altered levels of consciousness, right? Like what you're talking about that you know if the way he and it's it's not just the beauty of the line, the way it's ex, it's expressed, it's when it's expressed because that line comes after so many different. Uh, mentions of things of the different blessings right and so it's saying at that time when it finally comes that like he's asking the audience like you know what more can I ask my friends right like it's such a yeah it seems like the most perfect time for that question to be asked and to me that is the yeah. most demonstrative um, example of the word kafiyat that like it's like this progression progression of uh, consciousness moving towards uh, whatever the goal of Koali is, which, you know, it's transcendence, right? <laughs>
so um, let's ta- let's actually look at another very prominent uh, piece of Koali by Nusrat also, and along with other variations by different artists, but Shabazz Kalender or Damadamas Kalender or Lal Miripat, like all of these three songs are essentially the same poetry. Um, what do you guys want to, what do you guys know about the poetic history of that? I think it's per- one of my personal favorites because it's grounded in folk, um, folk history, folk culture, and it's grounded in, in beyond, um, what we know and what we normally use as um as you know like for instance when we're talking about islam a lot of it is like city-centered but something like this is not city-centered in pakistan it's a very folk tradition it's from the villages it's from um a barely unknown city shaven sharif um and i think that's what really inspires me of it because it goes beyond that um city rural dichotomy and it, it makes sure that everyone is equalized in those in that sense in the presence of Shabazz Kalender. For me uh, the same like I re- it's definitely one of my favorites I think it's really uplifting and um, really powerful also just the history of um, Shabazz Kalender I'm, I'm sure you both all know and, and maybe our listeners do but just the the sort of devotion or the the love for this saint both in both sort of muslim and hindu cultures is is quite it's quite intense and also you know the, the shrine itself being like such a focal point and like the the really sad kind of you know we all know about the the bomb attack in in 2017 yeah. as well that kind of like brings it all into perspective um but still hasn't stopped people from like devoting their time and energy um into into this but also yeah I just love the folk I just love the folk nature of it for me it's like I don't even know if I can describe it like this but for me it's like so um like Pakistani you know <laughs> like so and I love that's I love that about it like I love um the different versions of it um you know I love that there's a female version of it you know by um Reshma um I just mm. I just love all of that and I think uh it's just it's a really like I think it's a Kowali that really honors the tradition of Kowali, mm. but also honors the tradition of a faith in general, like for what uh, Shabazz Kalanda kind of stood for. Mm. Yeah. So I just want to give some context to our listeners because a lot of people may not be familiar with Lal Shabazz Kalanda is so or what who he was. Uh, so Lal Shabazz Kalanda was one of the foremost. Um, teachers and uh, is now considered uh, a saint of of Islam in the subcontinent who brought and spread the uh, the faith of Islam in the subcontinent. His shrine is based in Sevan, uh, which is a small town in the province of Sindh in Pakistan. And his name, uh, Shabazz, means uh, somebody who is of noble or divine spirit, and Kalander is... Um, essentially somebody who is a, a wanderer. So his name is actually Hazrat Usman Mirandi, but he is popularly known as Shabazz Kalander. Uh, so what I wanted to kind of touch on was, uh, the because both of you guys said, and we were previously talking about how folk tradition is so grounded, like what Sharo said about communal knowledge in Kowali. So Originally, if I understand correctly, this piece of poetry was written by Amir Khusro, and it was later added on to by Bulisha. 
but the like the the blending actually occurred by the by the practicing kawals themselves so how do you think the meaning of that text has kind of uh also lend itself to some fluidity or acquired some fluidity because you know like you're you're saying yes uh, yasmin you were saying that it's sung by reshma it's sung by it's also sung by abda parveen right like it's sung by all these mm-hmm. kawals of different statures so yeah. Is it something that can only be sung as a kawali, or is it something, uh, or is it a piece of poetry that can kind of assume many different characters? Let's say. I think if you were to put it in a modern context, like the beat of the words, like the the quickness and and the short, like the short sort of words and standards, um, stanzas, sorry, that it comes, it's almost like beat poetry or like spoken word. So it mm. kind of does stand alone on it as a poetic text. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I feel like it's that's kind of done on purpose because it's supposed to be quite hard hitting for the heart, but also to to kind of like extend joy because uh, it's a really joyous, um, like Kowali, because like I said before, it's sort of honoring, right? In mm-hmm. terms of like singing it in different, but I feel like however it's sung, it's supposed to like invoke people to move like physically and I think wherever I've seen a performance of this whether it's at the shrine or it's at in a hall or whatever like people can't help it they need to move right like they need to mm. dance and like show show their sort of joyfulness so I feel like I think it's kind of like it stands alone but also it's really different if a female sings it and if a male, a male sings it like I kind of I don't really know how to understand the shift mm. but like the dynamic of that maybe Shiro's can sort of talk about that a bit more but there's a there's a differentiation for me but the the aspect of the the sort of feeling of it being a poem that's quite sort of emotionally hard-hitting in sort of a happy sort of joyful way that's 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 like consistent and fluid I think throughout throughout I completely agree and one of the actually really cool stuff about about this specific poetry is is that um it's actually the one the version that Reshma sings is from a female perspective so if you look at one of the lines that is uh you're the giver of children to mothers and the giver of the brothers to sisters so there are a lot of women like a majority of the people that come to Shabaskal and this shrine in Seven are actually women and they're coming there with their um for wishes mm-hmm. for a son, for a daughter, for children, and to make sure they get this blessing of this uh, of this uh, Sufi mystic of the synth. Um, but also one of the coolest thing about this performance is that a lot of this this became an essential part of the female Kavali um, sphere in South Asia. So a lot of the most popular versions, one of the most popular versions of it before Reshma even performed it was done by Noor Jahan, where she sung it um, as a devotional hymn in a in a Pakistani movie in the 50s. Um, and then you have Reshma's uh, unique voice and how she brought her 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 presence of the desert in there because she's a nomadic woman from Rajasthan. And one of the cool things that um, I was reading about in the book, actually, the female voice in Sufi ritual, um, she was, the question was that... Um, does the desert affect your being and your mood and your temperament? And Reshma answers, it means that whatever our soil is or wherever our ancestors are, their language follows us. The same dialect, the same region, the same desert, the same simplicity. And that is the identity that she brings to the table, to this Kavali. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of times, uh, Kavalis become 
a means of expressing the cabal and to their creator. Mm. And that is exactly what Reshma does here. And um, for and it can be to any, uh, anyone can do it with them. And I feel like what you were saying, Yasmin, earlier about the difference between male and a female singing this is that, in my opinion, mm. this is a female Kavali. This, if uh, we know that Kavali, Kavali, uh, as a as a career and as an art, is very filled with its male centric career. But this is one of the few exceptions that is a primarily female Kavali. Actually, that's a really good point, and I really want to encourage uh, listeners to check out this book called uh, The Female Voice in Sufi Ritual by Shamim Abbas, because I really think that it challenges some of the most um, commonly accepted assumptions about what the male and female spaces, uh, particularly male and female Sufi spaces, look like in the subcontinent. And um, this author, like, you know, she really makes a core distinction between what um, a kalam is, like a Sufiana kalam, versus what a kawal. Uh, versus what a kawali is and she's actually gone a step further like you know she's talking about why does poetry especially Amir Khusra's poetry like uh, something like Ajrangha or Chaptalak it's written it's written by the perspective of that bridal imagery that image of a bride waiting for um, the groom to come right and like that kind of symbolism that it's at play it's talking about more than just love and that's that's why i hate modern interpretation and reduction of of kawali because it's often reduced to like such shallow pieces of like you know romantic love when it's actually talking about you know god it's talking about the beloved it's talking about the prophet it's talking about um dying and going to heaven right like so there's so much uh, symbolism that's used, but it's written. A lot of these prominent uh, kawalis are written from the perspective of the are utilizing the female voice. I was going to say, I think that speaks to how like secular kawali has become in modern in modern music and modern history and modern culture, it, even within Pakistan and the South as the subcontinent as as general, because um a lot of it's stripped from the cult, the religious heritage, the cultural heritage, the folk heritage, and a lot of the people who are singing it are. They come from the elite class. They come from, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but there is, um, Kavali, like when, even the type of words they use, the type of language, dialects they use, it's very folk and from the rural areas of South Asia. It's not made from, like, for instance, I talk about Lahore, but Lahore is still a very elite part of Pakistan. Um, as compared to Save and Raise, compared to Rajasthan, compared to all these um, rural communities, that that Kavali is one of their only forms of worship that they can a, a communal form of worship that is accustomed to their traditions. So I th- I want to touch on something that both you and Yasmin have mentioned this uh, this rhythmic aspect of Kavali. 
what is the role of the dhamal? Like, what is the dhamal? I think the dhamal can be akin to what dervishes do in Turkey, the whirling dervishes, right? It is a form of worship through movement of the body and through ruks, which involves the rhythm of the body to connect the soul with the universe and achieve closeness to the creator. Um, but I think Dhamal is usually actually accompanied by Kavali or some sort of folk music, whether by um, doles or other form of folk instruments. Um, it is a dance that attempts to formulate a relationship with the creator. And I think it's really hard to actually describe it in words because you really have to experience Dhamal to actually get an idea of remotely what Dhamal is about. Um, and unlike actually the whirling whirling of the dervishes, the mall is more loose and unregulated um, and not at constrained to any particular movements. Um, it's just a natural expression of the soul through the body when being in the presence of something that is moving the soul. Its purpose is actually ecstasy and transcendence to only please the crea creator and to connect the soul with him by any means necessary. Right. And that those are like really big words that I'm putting out right now. But um, actually a really cool theory on the origin of the mall that I came across recently was how it originated as an expression of grief and pain during the aftermath of Karbala so they could send their token of love and submission to higher souls. Um, it is often said to be the mother of all protests and grief and hence there's an extremely political nature to what the mall is about. Um... I also grew up with this story of Prophet David how, uh, and how he practiced sacred dance and music himself with the divine will and gave the message to his people through music and song. And I also actually <laughs> wanted to mention this because I read this quote on a dear friend's website, um, Alex from Lost With Purpose, and when she was talking about the mal to a damali, who said, when God puts his beauty in our soul, the soul begins to dance. And that, I think, is the essence of them all. Yeah. For me, uh, it's it's very much the same. It's like uh, almost like what well, it's like a dick, it's like the dhikr. So when you sort of sit in circles of dhikr and you kind of feel that way, um, it's kind of an expression, an expression of that. It ties into the hal, I suppose. Um, and then, like Shara said, you get it in different communities. So, you know, you might get a hadra in a different community or in the summer where... Um, you know, in, in Turkish sort of wedding dervish sort of tradition where they go around and, and sort of it's a build-up and the build-up is meant to uplift you physically mm. as well as emotionally. Um, and um, again, this is this is something that's seen as quite problematic uh, to some of the Muslim world, but also it it's also shows you the potent nature of a koali and koali singing, I think. So something that could lift you to that level um, is quite... It's quite um, exquisite, yeah. How do you guys, like, when you think about um, modern settings of Kowali, like, you know, concerts taking place in the West, um, how do you think that has evolved or transformed the way Kowali is consumed? That, like, a, a shrine or a durga is no longer the needed setting to listen to and enjoy Kowali? How do you guys feel about that? Um, so for me, it's it's been really great because that was the only way I could see live performances, especially like for the West and stuff. I don't think it's taken anything away from it. Obviously, 
if you want a completely authentic experience, the purpose of having a performance in front of a shrine in front of a shrine is to go there for blessings and to ask for prayers and all of that kind of stuff probably doesn't happen in a concert. Um, but the feeling is still the same. Like I, I haven't seen many Goali performances um, in my lifetime. My, I remember um, when I was younger, my brothers, he, they, they said that Nostrad came to their school and did a performance in the school. And also we, there was a lot of performances by Nusrat in Birmingham. His um, agency was was um, they they like uh, supported him here, so their base was in Birmingham, which is where I live. So there there were a lot of those performances, and I think it's it's brought it to a mainstream crowd, like Womad and things like that. Otherwise, I don't think that would have happened. Um, I think um, like I've seen um, Abdul Praveen perform live in Symphony Hall, which is quite a prestigious music venue um, in Birmingham, and um, the amazingness of that was that her mic wasn't even working and she didn't need it. Like that was the power of it. But the the audience was full. It was full of different cultures, backgrounds, ethnicities, all that kind of stuff, which was amazing. Um, I guess uh, my problem comes into commercialization, um, like the stuff you see in Bollywood and sort of the romanticized versions of stuff. I'm not completely against that stuff. I think it has its place. Um, but for me, it completely detracts from the spiritual aspect of of things. But I think it's still important to bring that tradition to a modern audience, which is where I think sort of the Coke Studio stuff and things like that come into come into play. Like that has its place in current society um, because there will be people like that are not from '90s diaspora kids that didn't have parents that listened to this. Sort of like that's going to be their reality. So how do we bring that to to now? Okay, so Sharaz, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the history of Kowali, the evolution, the some of our favorite artists, the role of the Dhamal, etc., you know, the modern interpretation and commercialization of Kowali. I want to start bringing the conversation to an end, and I want to, you know, throw a question to each one of you, including myself. Um, what is your favorite Kowali right now that you're listening to? I'm talking... 100 playlist hits a day, you know. Yeah, this is going to sound a bit hypocritical because we were just talking about modern Kowalis and how they've been misinterpreted. But um, Abida Praveen's Coke Studio, Balagalula Bikamalehi. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, but she's an OG though, so it's fine. Right. And I, I know, and I like morally, I'm against Coke Studio, but Abila Praveen, if you watch the <laughs> behind the scenes of that Pacific video, um, she went and rewrote so much because she wasn't happy with the first outcome and the first recording. And the Coke Studio producers were like, you know what? It's Abida G. We have to do whatever she says. And I would just go. <laughs> She takes her art to such a level um, that I don't think is really found in mainstream um, music right now. Um, and so I've- that actually really struck me as well when I was watching the behind the scenes of that. You know, she was talking in such pain and agony when she was saying, oh, I just wasn't happy. And right? I was like, wow, like who's who does that in modern art that like you're so like uh, that restlessness of like. You know, dissatisfaction. Talking about it, I'm getting chills talking about it. Amazing, and you know, another thing, the why I listened to it recently was because it was Shabi Miraj a few days Mm -hmm. ago, and Mm -hmm. Kavali is about like Miraj and like how God met 
the beloved and like how and it was just so powerful listening to it i listened to it constantly but i think a few nights ago it was the most powerful because when you take into the significant of the night and it was noruz um a few days ago so it was like new year's mirage and and then abu This is really hard because I listen to lots of different ones on rotation. But since we were talking about this like in the week, I've been just um, listening to some like old favorites. So uh, one of the ones I was listening to is by Abdul Praveen too. Is there Ishkinajaya? Um, about um, I think it's about Bulisha. I think it's written by Bulisha. I'm not sure. I think yeah, yeah I think it. And, um, it is actually the history behind that is really fascinating too because he is talking about how he's trying to appease his yeah or yeah gain the favor of his master yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. so I I would listen I heard this when I was like thirteen or fourteen like in in the car with like my brother and immediately got obsessed and now I still keep listening to it like it it just makes it's one of those again like those female kind of qualities that you just feel like. If a female singing, like it just makes you want to get up and sort of feel that joy and and sort of it's for me it's like really joyful. Um and it's obviously about also in the physical sense, like dancing, right? Which I think maybe we can cover in a later episode about like movement and koali. But mm-hmm. anyway, so that's one. And then the other one, I'm gonna have two. Um <laughs> it's one that makes me feel opposite emotions, like a happy sad way, is um Lajbal Medina de Dardadana, the Nusrat version which I discovered like a year ago and I haven't stopped listening to it like nonstop, but it really like, it's really emotional for me. If you haven't heard it, then definitely listen to that one. You will cry though. Just FYI spoiler. So it's really interesting that both of you guys in your first choices mentioned Abda Bervin's, um well, Balagal and Teresh Chaya. So I always um, 
to me, Gowali is the call and response structure that like you have somebody who's leading the call is making a statement and then it's met with um, a response from a troop. So both of those songs, if I'm not mistaken, are actually sung by Abda Parveen in a Kalam format instead of a typical Kawali format. Yeah. Yep. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But I but I'll I'll let that pass. You know, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let that I mean, pass. There's a performance of really hers, good answers. <laughs> there's a performance of hers of this one where she's quite young that I absolutely love. And I've seen that. Also, I know what you're talking about. You know, you know the one, right? I just love it so much. Just like, short hair. Per- yeah, it's just perfection. So we can post stuff in the link, so right? But recommends yeah, like definitely. definitely. And it's got the translation on that video actually, which is really useful. Yeah. So for me, my favorite right now is Mankunto Mala. Um, yeah, that's a really good one. So for for several reasons, but my main point, what I hate in the sectarian divide of like, you know, subcontinent is that like this whole like Shia-Sunni debate always surfaces and shows its head because apparently that's the only thing that matters, but it's not. <laughs> and so that's... Do you know, I never thought of that listening to... It literally never crossed my mind until you mentioned it the other day. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'm like... Well, kudos to you because, like, that Honestly, means probably that you're very pl- pluralistic, pluralistic in your mind, which is a good thing. <laughs> Maybe I'm just ignorant. I don't know, but no, it's yeah. definitely the former. So, for me, Mankunta Mala is like such a beautiful piece of art because it's only like there's only one verse. There's only one yeah. verse in the whole. Yeah. Uh, the the whole song like the poetry is one verse long but it's written by it incorporates so many different elements like it starts with the hadith of the prophet saying that for whoever i am uh the lord ali is the ali is his lord um and then it goes into the actual verse written by uh amir khusro and then the actual tarana which is hum tum tana na 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 like from mm. there, and dara mm. dil, dara dil, you know, yeah. that, that aspect of it is like so melodic. And it, yeah. even, even when you listen to, I know we talked about the Madam Mast Kalender, like the word the Madam, like that is the reason why I think, Yasmin, what you were saying about that rhythmic element of it, uh-huh. that it could be yeah. applied to so much, is that because it's that, ryth- that rhythm is actually based on biological sounds, like the sound of your heart, right? So, yeah, the heartbeat, yeah. The heartbeat. So, um, wow. and like the word dara dil, dara dil, right? Like it's saying, I actually forgot the translation, but like that I, that image of a beating heart is like mm-hmm. so prominent whenever I listen to Mankunto Mala and that Tarana comes up. So for me, like Mankunto Mala is like the all-time favorite. I agree moment, with you. But 100%. I'm sure it'll change in a week. <laughs> <laughs> you said all-time and then you're like, it's a week. <laughs> for a week. <laughs> I mean, you can't just have a favorite.
when I was in Medina, Taj Dar e Haram kept coming on oh, my man. mind. And it's, it was so sad because I really wanted there to be, like, you know how in South Asian shrines we have Kavals mm-hmm. present at, like, holy holy places. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a perfect time, like, perfect place to have Kavals. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, to no avail. <laughs> okay, you guys, this was a really great discussion. Thank you so much for joining and giving us the time. And I really hope that, you know, the audiences listening to this um, have some sort of a nuanced understanding after this discussion of what Kowali really is and the significance of it, of this tradition in the subcontinent and to, you know, the tariqa of practicing Sufi orders in Pakistan and India and the greater subcontinent. So thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening. All of the links mentioned can be found in our show notes. We're on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps.